Good morning. All right, now I feel bad. Do you guys need another minute? Nicely done. Good. Glad that you guys would rather talk to each other than listen to me. I would too. No, it's true. Maybe we should just have 25 minutes of talking to each other. Uh, so hey, good morning. My name is Bob, like Jake said. I'm really excited to stand up here with a Bible in my hand and get to talk about it. Um, if you have one in your hand, you can turn it to Matthew chapter 28. Um, we'll start there and then we'll, um, we'll go a couple other places too. Um, but according to my count, and maybe I'm wrong, but according to my count, this is our 17th week as a church uh, meeting here. So that's, um, that's awesome. That's, I mean, 17 weeks, it's not very long for sure. But if you've been with us for the last 17 weeks, we started with a series called Why We're Here. And then we had a series on Acts, um, the book in the Bible, Acts. And then we had a series on pain. And then we just ended a series called Heaven. So those, that's where we've been in the last 17 weeks. And all of those series kind of focused on like uh, the perspective of where we're coming from. Um, so like Acts, the birth of a church. Well, we're a, bir- you know, a, a birthing church, if you will. And so it was all, all of these series were kind of like the perspective that we're coming from. And so now it feels like, for the summer especially, we wanted to take a transition and start talking about uh, what we're doing. What's our mission? Like what, what are we as a church going to actually do as a church? Uh, and so this week we're starting, I think it's a five-week series, and it's called Disciples. Because that word really does capture uh, a huge part of the mission of the church in general, but it especially captures the mission that Arbor Church has set out on. Um, so with that, why don't I um, just read the Great Commission, there's our word mission from, and we all know it if you've been in church world for a while, but it's from Matthew 28, uh, verses 19 through 21. Or 20. It says, Go therefore, this is Jesus talking to his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So as Jesus had just rose from the dead and he's standing before his disciples, he's about to ascend to the to the right hand of the Father, and he's going to give his disciples a mission. What he tells them is, I want you to go and make more disciples. That's our mission. Um, So if that's our mission, what we wanted to do was spend the next five weeks making sure we knew what a disciple is, and then unpacking how we're going to make disciples and things like that. So that's the first question I want to answer today. What is a disciple? Because that's a word that we don't really use anymore. It's kind of an old school um, word. And it was a a word that was packed with meaning in the first century when Jesus said to his disciples, go make disciples. When when they said, when he said that word, it had, like they could picture something. There there was an actual really uh, long lasting, there was a historical meaning to what that actually was. Whereas if you say make disciples to us, we think of church world and we think of um, different things in that. And there might be a disconnect between the two, so I want to make sure right off the bat that we've got the right vision of what a disciple is uh, in mind. So what is a disciple? Uh, We'll start with how education happened in the first century. On a bright, sunny day, that's what you wanted to know. First century education. Can you teach me about that? Yes, I can. So when you're about five years old, pretty similar to now, from from about five to nine, all the little Jewish children in their um, towns and communities in Israel would go to basically primary school, and it would be taught by a rabbi. 
And a rabbi was, well, we'll get into that. Uh, they, they would learn from about five to nine years old how to read and write, and it was all focused on the um, scriptures, especially the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. The same first five books in our Bible today um, from the Old Testament, um, little kids would study that. So from five to nine, that was all the kids, boys, girls, basically all of them. But at the, about the age of nine, there was kind of a why in the road. And a lot of kids would just end their studies officially, and they would go and learn the family trade, and they'd begin that um, track. So whether their family was into carpentry or, you know, whatever, all the things that they did, that's what they'd focus on. But the best students, a small population of those students, would um, learn the family trade, but they would also continue studying, um, basically on the side. They would do both, because the best students um, could continue forth in the, in the program. So from five to nine, they all learned. From about nine to 14, the best students kept training, kept learning. It was still focused on the scriptures, a lot of the, the prophets and the, um, all the wisdom literature and all that stuff. But most of them learned the family trade. So then they'd get to about 14, 15 years old, and there was another why in the road. So those of the best students who are still studying, um, most, most of them went and they actually just focused on the family business. So even though they'd gotten that far, there was only a very small few who would get to keep studying. Everyone else would go and they would focus on that family business, but the few, the, um, basically like the, the Ivy League types, the kids who are going to go to the best schools today, they got to keep studying. And how it worked is they would approach a rabbi, um, probably in their community, and they would ask that ra rabbi if they could follow them, if they could be their disciple. And only a few from each community got the answer yes. It was kind of like an interview that happened. It was almost like applying to college today, but it was obviously a lot different. They would go to that um, rabbi. They, that rabbi would ask them a series of questions and see where they're at and see um, what their wits are like and all these different things. And if that rabbi felt like this kid has the mental capacity to continue forth and eventually probably become a rabbi, they would say, yes, follow me. And that kiddo would set on a course and would become a disciple. It was, so, so this was like very few kiddos um, got to be a disciple. And that was a very highly sought after position. It was a very honor, it was an honorable thing to become a disciple because it meant you could likely become a, dis, or, or a rabbi one day. And the rabbis in the community were um, a big deal. They're kind of like the sage, the, the really top, you know, top level um, wisdom and all that stuff. So that's how the stages of school went. So, so now you focus on, on these disciples. The, the thing that disciples did, it, it doesn't have an equivalent in our society today. Because it was basically a full immersion program. This kiddo would leave their home at 14 or 15 years old, and they would follow that disciple everywhere. Like, it was a multi-year, sometimes like five-plus years of following this, this rabbi everywhere uh, they went. Um, they, would, uh, they would follow the rabbi, who is often bivocational, who also worked. And so this um, uh, disciple would get to go see this rabbi in action while he worked. But the, the flip side was true as well. If the kiddo had things that he was doing with the family or w whatever, the rabbi also got to come and observe him. And it was this relationship where the, the disciple was zealous to take whatever the rabbi was and was like and, and what he thought and everything, and he wanted to become essentially the rabbi. So the rabbis walked through life with an, uh, an interpretation of scripture, and that was called their yoke. 
Uh, and so they would walk through, and they, they had a certain way of interpreting script, Scripture and how, how to honor God. And the disciples' job was to follow that rabbi and watch so closely that they didn't just learn, like, how they interpret things, but they actually almost became them, their mannerisms and all that stuff. As I was reading about it, I read about one disciple who um, snuck into the bedchamber of his rabbi so that he could see and experience how this rabbi related with his wife because he didn't want to miss anything. He wanted to become his rabbi. He wanted to know how do you love, how do you love someone. That's mind-boggling. Um, they, I read another story where uh, disciples would make sure that they, they didn't miss anything. And they would go wherever the rabbi was going to the bathroom. They would make sure that they followed there as well. Because they didn't want to miss, just in case the rabbi whispered a prayer as he went. They didn't want to miss that, because what if he, in that secret place, prayed, and I miss how to pray in that way while I'm also wenting. Um, so what I'm, what I'm trying to outline here is, to be a disciple was nothing, there's nothing equivalent um, in, in our society today. It was a full immersion program where you really did follow everywhere. The, the closest experience I have to it was um, I was in construction for just a couple years, um, and I think it was 11 or 12 years ago. Um, I worked for a guy named Gary Matthews, local contractor, amazing, amazing guy, and it was a small crew, three of us, and Gary would have me come to his house every morning to get the truck ready and to get the lumber and the tools and all that stuff, but he would have me come ridiculously early, because that's like a construction thing, I guess, um, but Nothing was ever really needing to be done, so I would go, I'd get the, the stuff in the truck, and then I'd have like an hour, and so his family, his wife, Linda, would invite me into the house, and she would make me hot chocolate, and she would do all these things, but it wasn't just like this cool relationship. That family, Gary and Linda Matthews, invited me into their life, and they would, um, he would, they would talk about it. They would talk about their marriage. She would be sitting there making lunch for him, and then she would talk about my, I was uh, dating Ruth at the time. Uh, and then we were about to get married, and she would talk about how she hopes my wife would make me lunch someday, and all this stuff. Like, they were sharing their whole life. Uh, we'd go off to job sites, and it would be me and Gary, like, up at the top of these ladders doing siding. Um, and sometimes we would be, like, really close together all day long um, in this super close, um, you know, like, proximity, just fixing windows or whatever. We're lifting stuff at the top of uh, buildings. So he knew me in a way that a lot of people don't because I am deathly afraid of heights. And so he witnessed firsthand, and he had to talk me down like plenty of times um, from, from these windows. But it wasn't just teaching me construction. He was always teaching me about life uh, as well. Um, so he'd, we'd be sitting there um, doing stuff, and then he would launch into a story from when he was a, the governor of whatever, and like he had this crazy past. And he would teach me these life lessons as we're, you know, building a deck or building a remodeling or remodeling or whatever. That's the closest thing I've ever experienced to someone drawing you, you know, into their life, having you watch. And then while you're doing your thing, they also, what the, the rabbis would do is as the disciples are doing their things, they wouldn't just kind of stand off aloof. They would ask the disciple, why did you do it that way? Why did you talk to that person in that way? And so they always had their wheels turning for their disciples. So they were always um, crafting them into people who were, they were transforming these disciples. And the, the, again, the goal of the disciple, they were zealous. 
They, they assumed that they had things wrong in their life, and they wanted to become more like their rabbi. So, um, so, so when Jesus said, make disciples, he had uh, this, this thing in mind that we don't necessarily have today. Um, and so here's, here's what a disciple is. Uh, disciples are faithful followers. That's, that's one thing I want to lay out today. Disciples are faithful followers. They don't have everything figured out. They're not perfect. They've never arrived, but the whole point of being a disciple is to follow that rabbi and to transform. It's to not stay where you're at. It's to become something, something more than yourself. It's to become like uh, your rabbi. So the first question I have before we start zooming in on actual disciples here um, is, do you follow Jesus in that way? That's been amazingly clarifying for me this week. Like, yeah, I, c- I can read the Bible and I can, I can have good theology. I can do all these different things. But when I look at it from that perspective of do I wake up in the morning and I am trying to follow my rabbi and I am trying to become him. His worldview, I want that to be my worldview. How he interacts with people, that's how I want to interact with people. There is nothing about him that I don't want to emulate and become. Do you follow Jesus in that way? I think we can kind of get lost in it and, and assume that it's quiet times and it's just kind of being a good person that misses the point entirely. That is not being a disciple. Being a disciple is following Jesus and trying to become just like him. You're, you're remaining yourself, but you're trying to emulate him in a way uh, where you're transformed. And the way he sees the world, you literally see the world and interact with the world. That's what, a, that's what a disciple is, and that's what we're trying to go after in this whole series, is becoming like uh, Jesus. So disciples are faithful followers. Okay, so, so that's the general concept. That's what a disciple is, um, at least in a nutshell. There's a lot more, but we don't have time. Um, so eventually Jesus chooses 12 disciples. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to kind of single out a disciple each week. I'm going to talk about John for a few minutes. Um, but we're going to kind of zoom in past the idea that Jesus chose 12 instead of um, telling that story. And we're going to zoom in straight to John. So the, the disciple John. So in Matthew 4, 18 to 22, this is what it says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now you'll remember, we talked about how the way of uh, of becoming a disciple was you approached a rabbi and if you were fit for it, they would say, follow me. But this is cool because it's flipped. Jesus is actually walking up to these two fishermen who are in their family trade, which means they, they, if they applied to become a disciple... They failed. They flunked. They were told, nope, you need to go learn your family's business. So he approaches these two fishermen, and he tells them, follow me. So he flips it. He chooses them. And I will make you fishers of men. So then, verse 20, immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. And going on from there, so further down the beach, I assume, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And John's the one we're talking about now. Um, They saw him in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father, and they followed Jesus, because disciples are faithful followers. So who is John? 
I'm going to take the next couple minutes and just kind of, I want you to, I really want you to walk away kind of like knowing John a little bit. Because um, I got to take some classes at Northwest University, super fun, where they, would, they got to tell us all about the disciples. And I remember just loving John. I just can't, can't describe how cool I think um, his interaction with Jesus is. So who is John? Well, he's a fisherman, which like we just said, he's, that means he's probably not highly educated. Um, but really cool that Jesus is calling him. He is probably the youngest disciple of all of them. He's probably 14 or 15 years old at this time. So he's a kid. He's really a kid. If you, if, I don't know, how many of you have a teenager? Many? Can you imagine your 14 or 15-year-old, like Jesus calling them, and then they leave you, they leave your house, and they go follow Jesus for three years? Amazing. Um, so they le- he, John leaves the father to follow his father Zebedee to follow Jesus, um, which makes it interesting. When you think of John as like basically the kid brother, you know, following the disciples around, they're all pretty young, but John is probably the youngest. So later on in the story, John's mom approaches Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I got a request for you. I want my two sons, James and John, to be at the right hand, your right hand when you come into your kingdom. She basically approaches Jesus and says, hey, can my two kids like be your, you know, right hand and left hand, be the, the number two and number three guy in your kingdom when it comes? Which makes it more interesting that he's so young and his mom is coming to talk to Jesus on his behalf. Uh, I like him. Uh, little Johnny. Uh, so during Jesus' life, so that phase, during Jesus' life, he's invited into like the, what's called the inner three. So Jesus had 12 disciples, but there were three, Peter, James, and John, who got specific access to Jesus that no one else really amongst the disciples had. So they saw things, you can read the stories, that the other disciples didn't. And they experienced things that the other ones didn't. So like the transfiguration, where Jesus is on the top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, and they get to witness uh, Jesus literally like changing, being glorified in front of them. He's like in white, dazzling white clothing and all this stuff. It's Peter, James, and John who get to experience that. Uh, they get to walk in the room when Jesus stops all the other disciples where this little girl has died. She has passed away. Jesus stops all the other disciples but says, Peter, James, and John, get in there. And they all walk in there and Jesus raises this little girl from the dead. Miracle. And John is one of the people, this little kid, who gets to experience this happening. If you read the Gospel of John, which I highly recommend, uh, there, are, there are times like uh, where the woman at the well, do you know that? You probably know that story. There's a story where John, or Jesus gets to talk to this woman at the well, um, and she lives, she's in a life of sin, all this stuff, um, and he sends the disciples to town to get food. But here's the interesting thing. John is telling us the story. So I don't know this for certain. I'm not claiming like it's absolute truth here. But I think that Jesus said, no, John, you stay here. Because John tells the story. He tells the details of the story in the book of John. So how could he be telling that unless Jesus was like, hey, hey, John, come over here. I know in about 80 years you're going to write this whole thing called the book of John. And so I need to tell you the details of this story. No, I think he invited John to sit there and watch the interaction with the woman at the well. It's the same. Uh, if you read John 3.16, the other disciples aren't talked about. Uh, Nicodemus comes to him in the night. I think, is, I think John is sitting right there watching the whole thing play out when John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son, when all that's happening. So anyway, all to say, John is invited into a very special place with Jesus in the inner three, and he gets to experience things that the other disciples just don't. Um, the, uh, another thing, he's not, by any means, is, is he perfect. 
He is not perfect. One time they were walking through Samaria, it says, and the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus. They, they, had, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus. And so John and his brother walk up to Jesus. You can just picture just young John with what, well, what could we do about this? Hmm. And he says, well, Jesus, this is John, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? So it's like typical 14, 15-year-old solution. <laughs> and you, if you read the story, it's in Luke 9. You can almost picture Jesus like looking at him like, what in the world? Do you want, do I want you to call fire down from heaven to consume them? I don't know what planet you're living on or what you've been listening to as we've been walking around for these past months and years. Uh, And it says he rebuked him. Jesus rebuked him and his brother for saying that. So by no means is John perfect. He's young. And I love seeing the little glimpses that you get that he's young and immature. And as he's following Jesus, he's becoming more mature and he's becoming more uh, like Jesus. If you read, uh, again, the book of John, uh, the gospel of John, uh, it never mentions, he never mentions himself by name. What does he call himself? The disciple whom Jesus loved. The beloved disciple. So... I was, an in, I was Jake's intern for uh, about three years, uh, years ago, like 10 years ago. But I was one of, one of, that's the key, one of Jake's interns. Imagine if I looked back on that time, and as I walked through life, there were like eight of us interns. I always talked about my internship with Jake, and I always talked about myself, myself as the intern that Jake loved. <laughs> like, I just walked through life that way. You know, it was like the this, this shining time in my life when I was an intern under Jake. And... <laughs> Yes, I was the beloved intern. Uh, It would seem super weird to us, but at the same time, it makes sense, again, when you realize he was so young. I can can just imagine there's almost like a, not a kid brother relationship, but kind of. I think Jesus pulled John close because he was so young and he, uh, and, and John was so, in a way, immature, but like that diamond in the rough that he just loved being around. Uh, The other thing that you, you learn from the fact that John calls himself the one that Jesus loved is he had a self-awareness about his relationship with Jesus. I think each one of us could walk through life and say, yeah, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Like, I'm the beloved disciple. I walk through life, I'm, I don't know it, it's crazy. It just seems like I'm the one that Jesus really loves. Like, he did this whole thing, he died for me and all this stuff. If you walk through life in, in that way, I think it shows a maturity not an immaturity, if you walk through life with that um, realization about your relationship with Jesus. Because that is actually the first lesson of a disciple. You actually don't get to, um, that's like lesson number one. You don't get to go to lesson number two until you start grasping that one. That as a disciple, Jesus loves me. I'm going to fall flat on my face. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to call fire down from heaven and be rebuked. But Jesus loves me. Like, that's lesson number one that I hope you at least, um, you're starting there. And that's one that you're going to learn the rest of your life um, and grapple with. But it's probably the, the biggest lesson you need to learn as a disciple. So that's during Jesus' life. All right, so now at the crucifixion of Jesus' life, where was John? If you read the story, John was the only disciple who was standing there during the crucifixion. No other disciples were standing there besides um, like three Marys and like a, a number of women, right? They were standing there and John was. John was essentially the only one who didn't split when Jesus was arrested and he was being crucified. He was standing there watching Jesus hang there on that cross. He watched the entire thing. 
Now, just historically speaking, he was probably able to do that because of his age. Uh, back then in the Roman stuff, I was reading that uh, women and children could go, come and go as they pleased when this sort of thing was happening uh, because they weren't seen as a threat. So John was probably young enough to where he could walk right past those Roman guards, stand there and watch Jesus, and they would look at him and go, meh, and then keep focusing on Jesus. Whereas if Peter, who is uh, pretty clearly older, if he would have walked up as a disciple of Jesus, the Romans would have been like, hey, buddy, come here. And they would have been like, I want to introduce you to a cross. Because you, you're an accomplice with Jesus who's being crucified. That ain't going to work unless in that day and age you were a woman or a child. And John stood there the entire time and sat there and watched uh, Jesus get, be crucified, which in itself is huge. He watched it happen. Uh, once um, Jesus was about to you know, breathe out his last, he looks down and he sees his mother Mary, and he sees John standing there next to his mother. And he says, Behold, John, your mother. And he says to Mary, Behold, Mom, your son. Which is, he's essentially saying, John, you are now going to take Mary into your home. And by the way, Mom, you're going to have to take care of little Johnny. Like it's a mutual trust there. I don't think he's just saying, hey, John, you're the, you're the boy, so you've got to take care of her. I think it's just as much, Mom, I love this kid, and you've got to take care of him. He's super young. He's been, he's been following me, and now it's time. So Jesus entrusts the, these two to each other, and then history um, tells that they actually, uh, she lived in his home, and they um, you know, continued forth and all that good stuff. So at the crucifixion, he was standing there. He saw Jesus die, and he, John takes Mary into his home. So then the resurrection happens. Three days later, Jesus comes back to life. Uh, again, the Marys, uh, a number of Marys, are at the tomb. They see it first. They see that the tomb is empty. So they go, and they tell Peter and John. Peter and John run to the tomb. And as we know from Easter when we talked about it, John makes it very clear that he is faster than Peter. Twice he talks about it in the book of John, uh, that he outran, outran Peter, old Peter, uh, which is awesome. Makes me like him again. He's young. I just love it about him. Um, so they see the empty tomb, and then uh, if you kind of speed up history a little bit, what happens is he becomes a pillar in the church at Jerusalem. There should be a map here. So he becomes a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, meaning like one of the key leaders. And then around AD 67, which is like 30, 34 years later, um, he moves to Ephesus right before the Romans, or actually as the Romans are rolling into Jerusalem and starting to, they're showing signs that it's going to get real ugly, he leaves Jerusalem and he moves to Ephesus, which is in like modern day Turkey, um, and he is a pastor, an elder there for a number of years, um, and some say he had like a circuit of churches. If you read Revelation, there it talks about the, I think it's the seven churches. They think that that was kind of his circuit of churches that he ministered at. And then in the A.D. 90s, so we're talking like 60 years after the crucifixion and resurrection, um, he is moved to Patmos, the island of Patmos, which kind of like modern-day Alcatraz, it's like the Roman prison island. Um, he is moved there, and that's where he writes uh, the book of Revelation. So in total, he writes five books of the, of the Bible. John, the Gospel John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He didn't name these, we did. Uh, and then the book of Revelation, um, which again is cool. You can see um, facts about disciples throughout all this. Not only did he faithfully follow even up to watching Jesus be crucified, um, but another thing is disciples are documenters. 
I just love that phrase, and I've, I've tried to like grab onto it for, for a number of years. Disciples are documenters. He, he wrote down, obviously, pages of scripture, but even throughout our life, you've got to be writing stuff down or it's just gone. It's just gone forever. Um, you'll forget. Um, so, so that's what's happening. He's, um, uh, he wrote five books of the Bible, like I said. And then, so I, I wish I could have spent the whole time, skipped like the context, and then just talked about John and what he taught, like his contribution and things like that. So what I'm going to do right now is, you can't boil five books of the Bible and talk about what John taught us in the next eight minutes. I, I just can't do it. So what I want to do is talk about his contribution in, in, in the way that it's most impacted me. Basically, I'm about to tell you my favorite verse from John. Um, uh, so... When you get to uh, where, where John is writing what he wrote, he's writing all of these books, um, his five parts of the Bible, very late in the first century. He not only was the youngest disciple, but he also was eventually the last living disciple. And all of his books, they say, were written pretty late. So all, most of the other books of the New Testament were already written. And then John, who is very old, they called him the elder, he was writing his stuff. Um, and one thing that, one theme that runs through his book is uh, what to do, how to follow Jesus when Jesus isn't around anymore. So if you remember, like, to be a disciple, you actually, you followed someone around, you watched them, you even tried to sneak in and, like, listen for their prayers as they went to the bathroom type of stuff. Well, one of the themes that seems to be running out or running through what he writes is how do you follow Jesus when he's not right there? So now imagine... That the church is growing, and it's, you know, 50 years or 40 years after Jesus rose from the dead, and all the disciples are slowly being martyred. John's own brother was killed by Herod. And so then, so it's like, of the 11 disciples after Judas, um, of the 11 disciples, all of a sudden it's 10, and then it's 9, and then it's 8, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, and then all of a sudden the church is looking around and they're like, the only person who walked with Jesus is John. And he's like 85 years old. He's obviously not going to live much longer. If you can imagine the place that that leaves the church, like what do we do once there's no one on earth who actually walked with Jesus? Like that is a weird place for the church to go. And so if you read John and his books, there is a lot about how the Father is going to, or how Jesus is going to send the Spirit and how, how this all happens when you can't actually see Jesus and you're not actually going to have disciples um, to talk to. But um, with, with that said, in John 8.31, this is probably my favorite um, verse that he un- unpacked, this, the favorite thing that he talks about Jesus and says. So in 8.31 to 32, it says, this is John. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So this is Jesus talking while he was still alive, but John is writing this years and years and years later to a group of churches and people who are probably standing there looking at John as the last living disciple. And what he's teaching them, what he's, um, what he's uncovering from Jesus is, Discipleship doesn't mean, you're fo- doesn't mean you're following the actual physical, like you can see him and touch him, Jesus. To be a disciple, Jesus said, was to abide in his word. Now, back then, they didn't have Bibles that they walked around with, not, not the full New Testament, Old Testament. 
they, they didn't have these letters that we have in the New Testament all just packaged all nice and neatly like we do. When Jesus in here says, if you abide in my word, he's not saying if you abide in the Bible as we know it today. What Jesus was saying is, if you abide in my message, if you abide in uh, what I'm teaching you, my interpretation about God, which ultimately does come into um, to be the New Testament, but in that time he's saying, if you abide in everything I'm teaching you and everything that I am, if you dwell deeply in that, then you're truly my disciples. That's what it means to be a disciple, is to abide in the message and in the word and in the way of Jesus. And abide, that's a, a word that means like to dwell deeply, to, to remain in it, to stew in it, to simmer, to crockpot, or however you want to say it, right? That's what it is to be a disciple, even now, even today, even though we don't have a living disciple or we don't have Jesus himself physically walking around, it's us in his word, abiding in it, and we're truly his disciples. And the cool truth, and the truth will set you free. And that is the goal of Jesus, is ultimately that you wouldn't just follow him um, for the, the, just the sake of it. It's going to lead you to freedom. And that's why truth is important. That's why truth is important, is because freedom hangs in the balance on the truth that uh, Jesus gives us. So that's a, just a small glimpse uh, I could do a whole series on what John taught, and I would love it. I would just absolutely have a blast. But that's a small glimpse of um, his contribution. So two questions for you. One, you might be here, and you maybe have followed Jesus for years. Maybe you're just, you know, you grew up in church, or you became a Christian 10 years ago. I did as a junior in high school, so it's been like 18 years now that I've been following Jesus. But the question I would want to ask you is, that's all fine and good, and that's great, but let's shelf that idea of just being a Christian, and I want to ask you, are you a disciple? Think of what it was when Jesus said, make disciples. What did they picture? They pictured someone who was following a rabbi so closely that they were trying to become that rabbi. Is that how you walk through life? Are you a disciple of Jesus, or are you a Christian? They call them disciples first. Are you a disciple? That's a question I have for you. If you're not, the next thing is an invitation. Maybe, you, maybe you're new to church, or maybe you've been in the church, but you're, you're the, the windshield wiper is clearing off all the mud, and you're realizing what's really going on here. The invitation for you is, will you become a disciple with us? Even this week as I'm reading all this stuff, I'm not claiming like, yeah, I'm a disciple and I'm just nailing it. What I'm doing is I'm reading this and I'm going, dang it. I've been, like a, I've been the, the term Christian for a while, weeks, months, maybe even years. But again, I'm like, ah, oh, no, I've lost sight. I've totally lost sight of this, of this. I am going to see how Jesus thought and I'm going to assume that there are things in me that are wrong and I need to change. And the invitation is for you to become a disciple with us. Can you imagine if a group like this decided to push everything aside, we're going to abide in the word and the message and the way of Jesus, and we're going to be disciples in this way, and we're going to walk into life, and we're going to go make more disciples, not more Christians, but more people who follow Jesus in that way, who want to be like him in every single way that they possibly can. Can you imagine what would happen if a group like this took that mantle on and we all said, yeah, let's be disciples together. We're going to try to call fire and lightning down and, and Jesus and through the Spirit is going to rebuke us and we're going to all fall fat, flat on our face. 
But in the end, we are going to be faithful followers. By no means are we going to be perfect, but we're going to follow until we start seeing fruit and we start seeing more disciples and we're going to make this thing just, you know, like a tidal wave crashing, like all that good stuff. Can you imagine how awesome that would be if we took it and we did that and we ran with it and became disciples? That is our goal. That is our mission at Arbor Church. That is what we're walking into, and we're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking that even more. So with that, I would love to pray for all of us, for myself, uh, and we'll, we'll keep going.